Hey, this is Rob and that's Micaiah and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, the Ramones debut album, Ramones. Micaiah, what do we need to know right up front about maybe the most important album in the history of American punk rock music? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a question of whether or not it is. I mean, I think definitively we can say that this is uh, the best, the, the most influential and probably most people's favorite too. I mean, it's, it's just a solid record. It's 14 tracks, just over 29 minutes. Um, every song is a hit by its own right, you know, and some of them are still mega hits that maybe they took 40 years to become hits, but who's going to say Blitz Creek Bach isn't one of the all time great songs yeah. of any genre. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is one of the things that blows my mind listening to this album, whatever your expectation of punk is, or your idea behind this band is you're going to be surprised to hear great pop music. I mean, really, you and I have texted back and forth about this album. It it sounds like sped up Beach Boys. Like it's it's mm-hmm. it is pop music from the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Right. And, and it really like just a catchy album. So much so that it it almost blows your mind that this was not a bigger hit or or that this album even now hasn't sold you know, multiple millions of albums. Like for all of the albums we've considered in this podcast so far, this is among the lowest selling. Yeah. This and Sex Pistols, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I don't know if, well, I mean, it's hard being the first, right? I mean, they're kind of the first to kind of really do something and they really paved the way for kind of the other CBGB bands to be more successful. You know, Talking Heads really take off and kind of become one of the bands that define the eighties. And they don't really have a big hit until they cover Al Green, you know, take me to the river was their second record. Um, and Blondie um, equally interested in doing kind of like ironic pop songs, but she also um, dips her toe into the, the hip hop pond at the same time. And that becomes big for MTV and Debbie Harry's great for MTV. And so is talking heads. Ramones aren't great for MTV. So in the eighties, they don't hit like them. Um, television is another CBGB band that doesn't take, um, but they're also not outright pop songs either. They're writing eight minute Magnum Opus songs like Marky Moon. Uh, and then you got Patty Smith who's trying to Patty Smith is trying to be the, the, you know, the punk rock poet, you know, and, but you have the Ramones who aren't trying, they're, they're, they're not art school kids like talking heads. They're just regular guys who working class people who grew up listening to Phil Spector songs from the Ronettes and the Crystals and other girl groups like Shangri-Las and the Beatles and the Beach Boys. And that's what they wanted to play. And I guess what they wanted to write, but what they're also seeing are things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and prostitution and violence and drug abuse. So their pop songs end up being about these things. Um, and it's kind of a music wise, a kind of a revolutionary act in the same way that the progressive soul writers were writing about drug abuse for the first time on records that are actually selling really well, you know, to, to, to write songs about 
these the subject matter, but to have it be so so fun and bouncy, something that twenty years ago maybe could have played on American Bandstand before you clocked that it was about sniffing glue. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting. It's fun. It's funny music, and I don't think a lot of people really allow themselves to enjoy fun or funny music, but it's really clever and really intelligent. And I mean, things like Rockaway Beach, which is on Rocket to Russia, I mean, I think is a very intelligent, perfectly crafted, you know, when, when people talk about like in the 90s, the whole irony thing was coming back and maybe because Ramones were having a bit of a resurgence then. But no one did it as well as them. Uh, it's perfect. I mean, especially, you know, when you're a teenager, if you haven't found that by your middle school years, I feel bad for you. You really missed out on something because it is it's really enjoyable to have a band like that, um, especially if you're, you know, like you and I who are trying to play guitar and trying to play drums and bass, trying to pick up any of these instruments, have, you know, after a long weekend can play this album front to back, which is appealing. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about teenage, you know, and, and there's a lot of music that your teenage years are the perfect time to discover it. And what I love so much about this episode is that today our guest is someone who has had a role in both of our teenage experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so, someone who was a part of creating whether it was television shows or movies or, um, you know, as, as a writer or as a producer, like there, all of these things that he's had a hand in that have in many ways shaped our teenage years and shaped so much of kind of our uh, sense of humor, our aesthetic now. And he was exposed to the Ramones at a very, very young age. So Micaiah, tell us about our guest today. Right. We are very excited to have with us today, Jake Folinest, um, who uh, had his first TV show when he was 14 years old that was on public access that eventually moved to MTV. Um, and, you know, he's, you know, for all of our you know fellow comedy fans out there, he's, you know, was very much tied to the people with the state. He was in Wet Hot American Summer. He was with the UCB crowd. You know, and he wrote for SNL and Tonight Show. I mean, he, he's been all over. He's had a lot of irons and a lot of different fires in the comedy world. And in the music world, he's uh, been a, a radio DJ uh, for a bunch of different, like, serious, you know, stations. And he basically owns and runs and operates his own streaming service at uh, Jake.Army. Yeah, I'm so excited for it. Well, hey, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to get you to our independent record store of the week in Los Angeles, California. We're going to let you hear from today's sponsor, Anchor, and then we will be back with our guest, Jake Fogelnest. so excited to tell you about this week's independent record store of the week the los angeles based record safari record safari was opened just a few years ago by one of the folks behind the coachella music festival it is located at 3222 los Feliz boulevard los angeles california 90039 
They are open every day from noon until 9 p.m. You can reach them by phone at 323-928-2290. Or you can follow them on Instagram at recordsafari underscore LA. Now let's get you back to the show. Very interesting. Uh, I have been in the professional uh, show business, I guess, <laughs> for over 25 years. When I was 15 years old, I started a public access show out of my bedroom. It sort of became a cult phenomenon and then became an MTV show. Uh, it ended just as the Upright Citizens Brigade moved to New York. Um, and I found, I don't know, a hundred friends in a small theater uh, on 22nd street. Then we moved. And uh, over the years I have been uh, a radio personality for Sirius XM. I uh, directed a lot of shows at UCB. I was kind of the first guy to say this improv stuff's great, but what if we wrote it down? <laughs> uh, I was writing, writing jokes for weekend update in my twenties uh, for Jimmy Fallon and Tina Fey. And then um, uh, I, I said, you know, I really want to uh, focus on this uh, television uh, full time. And then I became uh, a writer and a producer for TV working on shows like uh, everything from Billy on the street to what Hot American summer, difficult people. I did a Marvel show called runaways I also decided to, I've always been doing podcasts. Like people uh, might know me from my old podcast, The Fogelness Files. And I have uh, a new podcast platform and streaming video on demand service, which is called Fogelness Plus, where, which you can sign up for today at www.jake.army. I've been around, I've done a lot of stuff. I am uh, safely, it's safe to call me a cult icon, but uh, <laughs> that's the long and the short of me. Uh, so either you find me incredibly obnoxious or you're like, yeah, I get it with that guy. Yeah. And if you get it, great. We are so glad to have you with us. So let's get into our subject this evening. When did you first hear the Ramones and in, in and what was the relationship over the course of your life to, to the Ramones and their music? What have they meant to you? I got very lucky. So the first time I heard the Ramones was on the soundtrack to a movie called Times Square, uh, which I think it's out of print right now, but they're working on getting it back in print. And Times Square was produced by the Robert Sigwood organization. So what Times Square was supposed to be was a a movie that did for new wave, what Saturday night fever did for disco. Um, it did not do that. Um, any used record store you go into, you're going to find a copy of the two LP times square soundtrack. Susie Quattro, the pretenders, Roxy music, Gary Newman, talking heads, Joe Jackson, XTC, uh, the Q Patty Smith group, uh, David Johansson, Lou Reed, uh, the Ruts, and then a couple of weird ones like D.L. Byron and Desmond Child and Rouge and 
because it was RSO, Marcy Levy and Robin Gibb. And uh, central to the movie, used in the movie and on the soundtrack was the Ramones' I Want to Be Sedated. And I saw this film probably about seven years old and it would have been in about 1987. Um, I was like, what's that? That sounds like it's for me. And uh, then, you know, I, I quickly probably bought my first Ramones record after that. Um, and I was off to the races. I mean, that, that's young. Yeah. I feel, I feel like there's, there's a, there's a moment in time where the Ramones comes into someone's life and very rarely do you hear someone say the Ramones came into their life seven years old. Like well, that, that, that's know, awfully young, but, but that does something to you. Yeah. And it's like, you, you have to understand. I was also like, you know, watching John Waters movies and writing him letters and he was calling me at, at seven, it, 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 you know, um, my father uh, passed away recently and where he was great and where my mother was equally great is they gave me access. There was no such thing as uh, an R rated movie. Uh, there was no such thing as that's not appropriate for you. Um, if I showed interest in it, um, they let me watch it. They let me listen to it. Um, they were not particularly scared by uh, Tipper Gore and the PMRC. Um, in fact, I have a memory of my mom's boyfriend at the time uh, going to a record store to get a 12 inch of Frankie goes to Hollywood's relax UK import. And uh, the cover of that is uh, quite a striking image for a, uh, a young man. And you know, my father wasn't completely irresponsible. He, you know, he would show me uh, pink flamingos, but at parts that were a little bit dirty, he would fast forward. You know, I, I happened to, you know, I grew, up, I grew up simultaneously in Philadelphia and New York City. My mother was in Philly. My dad moved to New York. I was super young. And then eventually my mom moved to New York. And, uh, I had the benefit of incredible video stores and, and cool movie theaters and, you know, they, they, and cable television. So, you know, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Tim Curry is uh, in the movie Times Square. So I was drawn to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It, it, we would walk by the A Street Playhouse in New York City and I said to my dad, what is this? And he's trying to explain it to me. And I said, I want to go to that. And mm. he took me, you know, in, in, and I, I know the weekend he took me, the weekend that the Tom Hanks, uh, Dan Aykroyd drag Dragnet remake came out. We saw that. And then we stayed up late and went to the A Street Playhouse, see Rocky Horror. This has been 1987 and uh, summer 87. And that, it was, Still in its kind of heyday, you know, I, I met Sal Piero, the president of the fan club, still a friend today. And, you know, I could hear the whippet canisters um, hitting the floor of the theater. <laughs> and and I was just like, this guy, Tim Curry, seems cool. What else is he? <laughs> Times Square. Mm -hmm. I was an obsessive. 
And so if I liked one thing, it was like, well, who directed it? Who produced it? You know, and um, Times Square led me to the Ramones and the obsession still carries to this day. Does it, does it pretty quickly become obsession with the Ramones? Yeah, pretty fast. I, I probably picked up uh, Ramones Mania, which did sell uh, a million copies in 1988 uh, because that was sort of their best of compilation. And, uh, you know, from that, you know, that's that's only going to take you so far. Uh, I wanted to hear. And then they were also a contemporary band at the time. I joke about it all the time with my wife. She's like, my favorite Ramones album is brain drain. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, they were, they were still a band, but um, so I went back, you know, mm-hmm. but Ramones many of, you know, that is their record that did go platinum because, you know, even by 1988, I think people were like understanding like, Oh, this is, these, these are great songs. And um and then Pet Cemetery came out and that was kind of a hit. And, and, you know, so the Ramones were just, and then also Howard Stern was a big Ramones fan and I was a big Howard Stern fan. So, you know, I would, he would have them on and I was just very culturally aware of the Ramones and, uh, you know, he, he, there's a reason why they make like, and I would never put a, a baby in one of these, but like, there's a reason why they make a baby onesie with the Ramones logo on it. And that's because little kids like the Ramones <laughs> and you know, they really do. And I, I have a two year old daughter that will, that if, if I put on, if I put on the first Ramones album, she immediately will start singing. Hey, ho, as soon yeah. as, as, as soon as it starts, I mean, she's yeah. a two year old and she, she's, it's immediately, she grabbed onto it. Because the Ramones to me, and I think that the the big misunderstanding about the Ramones is that they are uh, like they were trying to, and I think effectively did write really great pop songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a good pop song is a good pop song is a good pop song. I don't care if it comes from the Ramones or Elvis Costello or Olivia Rodrigo. You know, a good pop song is a good pop song is a good pop song. the Ramones is like you know while they never hit the big time Blondie did mm-hmm. Talking Heads did um, you know a lot of their contemporaries uh, that started at CBGB they hit and they would have the Ramones open you know um, I recently and this is free to everybody uh, over at www.jake.army 
Uh, I talked to Monty Melnick, uh, who was the Ramones tour manager. The Ramones played something like uh, 2,361 shows, and Monty was there for all of them. Wow. And he's got a book on the road with Ramones, updated edition, and uh, you want to talk about it. I was just like, yeah, I want to talk to Monty because he, I remember reading that book when it first came out in the first iteration. And can you imagine being in a van with those guys every day and like getting them to the venue and putting up with all the, all the fighting and the personalities and Joey's OCD before there was a name to it. And, mm-hmm. and Johnny being a drill sergeant Republican, like they were a touring band and that's how they made their money. And, and well, and, and to the point you were making earlier about like, you know, if, if, if only they had sold, sold records, I mean, really the only reason they were able to last as long as they could as a band is, is their touring that they, you know, that, that they made money doing concerts and in really all over the world, like you said, you know, did huge events in, in South America, but you, you hinted at something there that I think is so important for us to, to remember, which is Johnny, Joey, Didi, and Tommy, um, this was not always a great relationship. No. Um, and, and it was, it was often an acrimonious one. So for, for our listeners, and especially as someone who, who, you know, you've, you've talked and, and again, you know, we want to encourage our listeners to, to head over to jake.army and, and you can hear this as well as, as, as Jake interviews him about this, but what is some of the things our listeners need to know about that relationship and in some of the acrimonious nature of the relationship between Joey, Johnny, Didi, and Tommy? Well, first of all, you can, you know, there's many books you can read. Um, uh, Johnny Ramone did a book called Commando b- before he passed away, uh, which I love for its uh, index system of like, he gives every Ramones album like a letter grade and uh, it's very funny. Um, and then there's a, a, a book called I Slept with Joey Ramone, which is written by Legs McNeil and Mickey Lee, who's uh, uh, Joey's brother. Uh, and and then they did a great documentary, End of the Century. So if you really want to know this stuff, I would go to those sources. Dee, Dee wrote his book, Lobotomy, and a couple other books. Uh, but, you know, yeah, so... First things first, Tommy um, steps back as a Ramon after the third album, I believe, and mm-hmm. uh, because he didn't want to tour. He didn't want to tour. He was more interested in the, uh, the studio and the producing, and that's how Marky Ramon came in. And I've, I've been very, very blessed in my life. I never met Johnny. Um, but I, I, I met Joey and hung with Joey several times, um, before he passed in just being in New York city in the nineties of a lot of fun Joey memories. And, um, I never met Dee Dee, um, which I think was probably for the best because we would have gotten into trouble. Um, (laughs) Marky, I, uh, a friend of mine wrote like a sketch and he's like, Hey, Marky Ramon has agreed to do it. Do you want to direct it? And I was like, yeah, sure. And it's got like a, almost a million for college humor. It was a fun day with Marky Ramon. And, uh, that's just on YouTube. So like I, and then Marky was a, a DJ at Sirius XM. So was I, so I would, you know, see Marky, but to answer your question, um, you know, at different 
they were a band from 1974 to 1996. The Beatles lasted what? 10 years. Yeah. Not even. All right. And the big drama, there's a lot going on. Um, You know, Joey, we had a lot of different personalities. Okay. You had very different personalities. Joey had OCD, very, very bad OCD. So nobody could understand why Joey needed to, you know, touch a doorknob three times or all that stuff. And it was just very frustrating. And it was just like, why do you have to do this? You know? And Johnny was, you know, like a drill sergeant, you know, you look back to the first Ramones show to last Ramones show, they're rehearsing before the show, every show. Um, that's just what they did. And Joey would do vocal warmups. And uh, Dee Dee, um, I, let's just say he wasn't exactly health conscious all the time. Um, and That's a generous uh, way of putting it. Yeah. No, like uh, 53rd and 3rd is a autobiographical song, you know? <laughs> And, um, and then, and then Marky had his troubles with alcohol out of the band. Richie Ramone comes in, uh, and then Clem Burke plays for two shows as Elvis Ramone. And, um, he just didn't get enough rehearsal time. And, uh, Richie left cause he wanted t-shirt money. CJ came in cause Dee, Dee was tired of touring. Um, it's exhausting. The, the touring they would do is exhausting. And then the big thing, which a lot of people say the song, the KKK took my baby away. You bring up Johnny being a Republican. Um, Johnny and Joey dated uh, Linda at the same time. And Johnny kind of stole Joey's girl and married her. And she's a fabulous woman, uh, Linda Ramon. Um, I'm always excited to run into her. She is fabulous, just great style and um, a, a, a terrific uh, just personality. Cool, cool lady. Um, but yeah. And so basically you're staying in they, they, the, the Ramones came to a business relationship at a certain point. And it's amazing they kept it going for as long as they did. Um, and then it was time to hang it up. Yeah. Beat on the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with the baseball bat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Beat on the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with the baseball bat. Oh, yeah. In my head, when I think CBGB, because for me, not as someone who didn't grow up in New York, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from South Florida. Like my, when I think CBGB, I am also thinking of a t-shirt in the same way that I'm thinking of a t-shirt when I often think about the Ramones. And so in my mind, Ramones and CBGB completely go together. 
But I also know the reality is this is a scene that yeah. produces television, talking heads and Patty Smith and Bla- like there, there, there is such and a diverse group of artists the, that come out the of mumps, the you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the bands that, you know, and Tish and Snooki and, you know, Wayne County great artists. Yeah. Wayne County and great artists like Arturo Vega, who just happened to live across the street and he designed the Ramones logo and all their uh, uh, stage lighting and stuff. Like um, it's all covered uh, pretty incredibly in uh, Legs McNeil and Jillian McCain's book, which will never go out of print, Please Kill Me, which does an incredible job of covering the New York punk scene while simultaneously covering the London punk scene, Mm -hmm. which are two very, very different things. And we will get into why the Ramones didn't get played on the radio. Uh, And this is the thing. Um, If you were to ask the Ramones in 1974, 1976, you know, they would say we're a rock and roll band. We're not a punk band. They, uh, the term new wave is, you know, a lot of people claim to have invented it, but like it really was at the end of the day, uh, an invention of Seymour Stein who did put out talking heads um, to Radio stations were so scared of punk, like because they had seen the press of the Sex Pistols and they were spitting and they were, you know, you know. There's a WK, WKRP in Cincinnati episode. The first, the pilot of WKRP, Doctor Johnny Fever, uh, R.I.P. Howard Hessman. You know, Michael Day Bars plays the lead singer of a band called Scum of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And the big joke is, of course, they come in suits and ties, but they're awful, you know, just bad human beings. And it was every radio station's worst nightmare that this image that the Ramones were going to come in like the Sex Pistols or whatever. And it was all nonsense. So it's like it's not punk. It's new wave. And they're like, we're a rock and roll band in the Ramones mind. They're writing. That's why they eventually work with Phil Spector. They're writing, you know, the songs, their versions of pop songs that they uh, would hear on the radio, except instead, you know, and a lot of great love songs, but yeah, also about snip and glue because it was true to their experience. So let's, let's talk about that for a minute because there's something, I, I think we have an anachronistic view of the Ramones where it, we want to think of them as kind of, coming out of the gate in New York city, like, you know, like stiff upper lip, angry, they're starting, a, they're starting the New York punk scene. They're starting the answer to what's going on in London. And, and like you said, the truth is like so much of that is marketing and anachronism after the fact. It's two, there's two simultaneous events that are happening at once in New York City and in in London. Two very different things were going on. Um, so, you know, Hilly Crystal opens up, uh, you know, CBGBs, which stands for country, blues, bluegrass, you know, whatever it is. And he that was his taste, you know. And I think I believe the first band to show up there and say, hey, can we play? was television and you know hilly was like he didn't think they were particularly good or anything but he's just like well if it gets people in here to drink you know and um 
And the Ramones were, you know, Joey was in like glam rock bands. That's like maybe where there's a little bit of a crossover because like as glam rock was uh, happening in, in the UK, um, you know, people don't, people need to recognize that punk in the UK, as political as it was, it was also born out of fashion. Mm-hmm. The Sex Pistols all used to hang around. Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood's shop sex, you know, where they sold bondage gear as, you know, fashion. And, you know, that's where the sex pistols put together. Now, of course, Malcolm McLaren, he's uh, got rest his soul or not, depending on who you ask. But, uh, you know, the great rock and roll swindle, it's a retroactive telling of what happened to the sex pistols they were a real band and uh and that's really documented in julian temple's excellent documentary the filth and the fury and also in jonesy's book like like but malcolm you know sort of ran with the controversy and stuff and and that's going on in london meanwhile in new york yeah, these guys from Forest Hills, Queens, um, Tommy had a kind of rehearsal studio business that was going that Monty was sort of involved with and um, where bands could rehearse. Joey was in some glam rock band. They came together and, and Joey was originally on the drums, but, you know, he had a good voice. So Tommy kind of created the drum sound that drum sound did not exist before Tommy Ramone. Like, you know, maybe he's, I'm sure he's stealing from somebody, but it's sort of like, you know, the the distinct drum sound, which got faster and faster and faster over the years uh, in the live shows. But like there's, there are two totally different scenes, you know, where it intersects is the Ramones go to London at a certain point and everybody shows up. And like, you know, the class show up and, and uh, the, the sex, Pistols, everybody shows up, you know, the sex pistols, you know, previously it's in Jonesy's book, they're stealing gear out of David Bowie's uh, as he's doing the Ziggy Stardust show, you know, they're stealing microphones and guitars and stuff, amps. And, you know, they were, two very, very different things. And then the clash came along in, in, in the UK and they brought the politics to it and totally different scenes. They mm-hmm. weren't acrimonious with each other. Um, I think that when the American bands would go over to the UK and they would get spit on, they were like, we don't like this. Um, we understand that you consider it a sign of uh, respect, but we please stop spitting on us, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's two completely, you know, different scenes that are just emerging at the same time coming out of the same energy, which I think is, you know, New York city was, you know, particularly the Bowery where CB's was. And there was also like my father's place, like, like, it was a rough city and London was going through rough times politically, especially for young people. And, you know, they needed something before there were punk records. Like, you know, the, you know, the, the first like 
I think punk single actually in the UK that comes out on Sif Records is the Dams, uh, Neat, Neat, Neat. So in between the bands playing at like, you know, whatever, the 100 Club in London, they're listening to reggae music, you know, uh, from the 60s, like uh, Don Letts had uh, brought over and like he's DJing and, and he was cool enough to have a camera and stuff. But at the same time, in like um, in New York, you know, I, I don't I don't know. I don't know what people were, were listening to. And I think that like you ask, you know, you ask people that were around at that time and they'll tell you like, yeah. Andre True Connection, that's a good song. More, more, more. Like, come on, sorry. We, you know, at the time you couldn't say it, you know. Mm-hmm. These lines that people draw about like, this is what it means to be punk. It's so stupid. Mm-hmm. It's so stupid because it's like, um, you know, what it means to be punk um is whatever the hell you want. Yeah. You know? It well, definitely seems to be true for for CBG because when you look at television, right? Very very skilled guitar players and musicians and television, you know, Tom Berlain's pretty much like a virtuoso, but then you have Blondie, right? Which is a very different band and has very different kind of ideals, which is very different than Patty Smith and the Patty Smith group, yeah. which is which is very different even if, you know, even if Tom Berlain's like co-writing with them sometimes it's still you know, they're very different from talking heads who are like the art school kids from Rhode Island who are doing their, who are more interested in like parliament funkadelic. And then somehow the Ramones come in with leather jackets playing and writing bubblegum pop songs. Yes. At a speed that no one can really you know, keep up with. I'm so glad you mentioned like bubblegum pop because that like, you know, you know, a, a Ramon song was like they were they were trying to get a hit like "Sugar Sugar," mm. and right. You know, I think that the Ramones have a certain humor to them, um, which is you know greatly on display in Rock and Roll High School, um, the movie, mm-hmm. and and but as a band, like they were really like like Sheena is a punk rocker they wanted to rush that out to try to get that played on the radio because, you know, Seymour believed in them and thought this is a hit. And, you know, we listen to it today and it, it, it's a timeless classic mm-hmm. and is a, a perfect song. And, um, you know, I don't know how many Spotify plays it has or whatever, but like, um, again, that that's not a a big seller. Girl, I wanna be a boyfriend. 
Well, let's you you've alluded to this earlier, and I, I want to kind of call you back to 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 talk about this because when you listen to the Ramones today, it it seems so divorced from those London Sex Pistols, you know, kind of awful kind of impression imagination of of what punk of what uk punk was going to look like or what it was going to do in in the u.s and and when you listen to the ramones now i, I mean really it just sounds like fast beach boys i mean like that's yes it, right. it is it, 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 it and so i wonder had had it not been for the distaste around that idea of punk or what this might be it feels like the Ramones were just one or two radio hits away from being a massive the biggest band. band in the world. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. it could, it could be, so, um, it could so be. What was the issue that they had? Why couldn't they get played on the radio? What was, what was the gap between that marketability that they could never find, even though they were a band trying to write great pop songs? It was not Can't successfully so, writing pop songs. It, it yeah. was not for a lack of trying. Um, um, you know, uh, the Ramones were co-managed by Linda Stein and Danny Fields. Um, they were signed to Sire Records by Seymour Stein. He believed in them. That's why you get to the fifth record, you know, um, in 1980. It was just like, we are going to, you know, Phil Spector like them. Okay. Now, you have to remember, Phil Spector, yes, he's crazy. We, we, we know this. He was a monster human being. But, but a genius. Possible. Yes, he's, he was an absolute genius. I mean, let's, let's say he was a musical genius. He right? was a musical genius. He was also, like, in terms of, like, abusing women, I would put him, like, if you're, like, <laughs> you know, I don't think we should celebrate that, but, like, I would put him at a genius level of abusing and harming women. Uh, yeah, he, you know. It, a top-tier abuser. Top-tier abuser, you know. Um, you know, um, uh, strange, strange human being, but he knew a hit when you know, he heard one, you know, it's like, for, for, for goodness sake, the Beatles called him up to, you know, help with, uh, you know, finishing up, let it be. And then of course they took all of the stuff that they did right. away and their solo careers, except for yeah. Paul. Yeah. And yeah, except for Paul, who was just like, Oh, he gives me the creeps. Uh, <laughs> Paul, and Paul seems like he had a good radar for that. Um, but yeah, no, George Harrison and John Lennon and uh, like they, they made incredible records with uh, Phil. And so for Phil Spector to be like as early as 77, like I, I would like to produce the Ramones. That was a big investment for Sire Records. That was like, we are going to break them in radio. If it's a Phil Spector production, meanwhile, of course, the Ramones have a miserable time making this record. You know, Johnny does, you know, there's only so many times that you can, you know, the Ramones were used to going in first album was made in what, like six days for like five grand or something The studio inside radio city musical. When you're in Phil Spector's castle being held at gunpoint and he's drunk on Manischewitz wine and you're playing the opening chord to rock and roll high school over and over again, eventually Johnny just left. You know, and, uh, you know, it's like, you have enough, you know, and 
Joey worked with, he liked working with Joey. And then that record, they cover one of um, Phil's, you know, songs that Ronnie Spector sang, Baby, I Love You. And that kind of charts in the UK. But like at 54 and like it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't hit. It doesn't hit. And I think that's the moment where it sinks in for them that it's just going to be this cycle of maybe the next record, maybe the next record, maybe the next record tour, maybe the next record tour, maybe the next record tour, you know, and then finally just like record tour. And, um, and that's, you know, that's sort of the, you know, the, the first five Ramones albums, it's all there. It's all there. And they, and they have some bright spots on the other albums too. Um, but yeah, um, music discovery was so different than it is today. Mm -hmm. Um, you were at the mercy, like, yeah, there were cool DJs like Meg Griffin. I'm sure, you know, WNEW like in New York gave them Rodney Bingenheimer, KROQ. Yeah. They would play the Ramones, but you know, getting in that regular rotation, on the top 40 stations. Oh, they tried. Mm. They tried so hard, you know, and um, think of what was on the radio all those years, 1974 to 1980. Like, go back and look at what was in the top 40. And I'm not saying some of those songs are not great, um, but where does that fit in? Where you take a band like Blondie and you can go, oh, yeah, I, I see how that fits in. Mm-hmm. They just couldn't, the, the programmers could not wrap their head around it. They, they, had, they had no song to play after and they had no song to play before in their minds, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, it, it's, uh, I think Ramones fans are like, you know, Diehard Ramones fans are uh, in this sort of like secret society almost of like, you get it, but, but they, yeah, you think, well, what what it could have been, what what could have been, but in the nineties, they got, you know, the, the, the respect, but in, 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 in retirement, like, I think they, um, you know, Marky's still around and, you know, and touring and stuff and people are going to see him every night. And, but uh, Joey and Johnny and, and Dee Dee, who all passed away pretty close to each other, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, there, there was never going to be a Ramones reunion. Mm. There was never going to be a Ramones reunion.
I love having you on to talk about this. It's clear, clear how much you love this band and how much they mean to you. Um, but for us, you know, kind of nature of our podcast is talking about the the great albums. And for us, we've we've chosen the Ramones debut album yeah. as, as our pick for kind of the best representation of who this band is and, and arguably that. their best album. So what makes what makes this album so great for you? What makes the album so great for me is that, you know, I don't know how many minutes the album is, but it effectively does everything it needs to do in an efficient amount of time. It's a unskippable album. It's an album that I can return to uh, again and again, and I am happy. And uh, it, it, it brings me uh immense happiness and you know these are anthemic um like here we are world this you know we are the ramones and you know there's so many people i know that uh, talk to that, that like the first time they put the first ramones album on right they were like i hate this this is, this is are you kidding is this a joke you know and then they listened to it again and they were like Oh, no, 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 I get it. You know, like the people that were there kind of early, it was almost like, is this like stupid? Is this <laughs> stupid or is this brilliant? You know, I can't think of a better debut album, you know, for that encapsulates the personality of a band. Uh, I mean, what an image just from the album cover to, um, you know, the sequencing of the songs, you know, it, it, it is so just like, and, and and they weren't for like dictators go girl crazy. I think came out like before, but like, and dictators are a lot of fun and I love handsome Dick Manitoba and, and, uh, but the Ramones, it was like, here we are. We're in our leather jackets. This is us. These are our haircuts. And it stayed that way. Almost like a military uniform until the end they so clearly settled on what their identity was that right out of the gate you you are you are here you go this is the ramones this is all you need to know because and and not that the music wouldn't you know change or or that you know they, they wouldn't kind of grow in some of the approaches they took but who they all who they were as a band was they consistent as, start to finish. They came as fully formed as the Beatles, yeah. you know, yeah. like, um, and you know, the Ramones take their band name from Paul McCartney. He used to check into hotels under, uh, the alias Paul Ramone. So that's why they're called the Ramones in honor to the, the Beatles, you know, um, and you think of that, you know, the early Beatles and stuff and the suits, you know, singing, she loves you. And that was just, you know, it's just 10 years later. And it's just like, yeah, we're guys from Queens. We wear leather jackets and blue jeans and stuff. It's almost like if Brian Epstein didn't come in and say, boys, let's put on some suits, you know, and uh, George Martin wasn't like, uh, okay, we're at Abbey road. Let's, you know what I mean? It is just, stripped down you know and with that beach boys uh bubblegum pop like appreciation like 
every single song on the Ramones first album is, is in their mind, the best pop song ever written. you know, they're bridge and tunnel guys. Yeah. That's what was so interesting watching rock and roll high school was to my Floridian ears. It's like, these guys sound through like from the Sopranos or something like this is not what I expected the Ramones to sound like. <laughs> like well, the whole, they're speaking voices. Yeah. The whole joke of rock and roll high school, like, um, you know, it's very interesting. It's like uh, rock and roll high school. Roger Corman came to, Alan Arkish and uh, Joe Dante, Rust a Bunch. And, and, um, you know, these were guys that were in the, the Roger Corman system of, um, and he's like, I want to make a movie called Disco High. Uh, <laughs> Disco was very popular. And Alan Arkish was like, no, we can't make a movie. And he's like, I want to make a movie called Disco High. Uh, and I, it needs to have a scene with girls gymnastics. And I want the high school to blow up at the end. And Alan Arkish was smart enough to say to Roger, you know, um, disco, if you, you want to blow up the high school at the end, the kids blow up the high school, like it, it can't be disco. It has to be rock and roll. It's going to be rock and roll high school. And um, the so that was a film project that was happening. And, you know, they got hooked up with Warner Brothers, which is the parent company of Sire. And, you know, they were being pitched Devo to be in rock and roll high school. They were being pitched a uh, cheap trick. Uh, I think cheap, you know, and then Alan, because, you know, he worked at the Fillmore East. He, he had heard the Ramones and he thought, well, this could be, you know, the Ramones put out three albums by that point. And the idea of a teenage girl being in love with Joey Ramone the way that a teenage girl at that time would be in love with like Rex Smith or Donny Osmond. That's just funny right there, you know? And, and then it's just a very sort of airplane style movie. This became particularly challenging to me uh, in the not so distant past when um, the rights to rock and roll high school came up. And somebody was going to take it and try to make it a TV series. So uh, I had a meeting and I said, nobody's going to be able to do this better than I am. And uh, they agreed. And then I brought on some big producers and we sold it to FX. And what I essentially did was I prevented a very terrible 
TV series version of Rock and Roll High School uh, from making it to the airwaves. Um, <laughs> before I had it, Alex Winter had it. Um, Howard Stern bought the rights because he loved the Ramones and he was going to produce films. And Alex Winter's version never went anywhere with it. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, I was happy to protect the Ramones legacy and also collect a script fee. I think we have this idea of we have this idea of this punk aesthetic that seems to be that seems to not care that, that seems like in, in, in almost in some ways you hear it like if, if you listen to if you listen to the journal well, they have a song called I don't care I don't care yeah there, yeah <laughs> but, but you know let's look at if you look at the lyrics of you know that song it's like I don't care about your world I don't care about that girl it's really like you know about uh you know a guy feeling uh isolated getting blown off by a girl so you know sort of an anti-love song you know mm-hmm. and, but, but as a band they cared very much about what they did nobody cared more in in the the attention to detail in their rehearsals, their attention to detail in in, in making sure, like you said, that they're they're going to show up at every show, they're going to give their best at every show, and even and this is one of the things I think people miss out on. If you come to the Ramones' first album with some expectation of what the Ramones are like, it's easy to forget how well produced the album is. I mean, the album sounds great. Like it, it doesn't sound like an album where people don't care. This sounds like something that was painstakingly worked on. Yeah, because they went in prepared. You know, mm-hmm. you, we can see the early footage of them arguing. I don't know if it's like, you know, and but like they knew we got a record deal. We have a certain amount of money. We have a certain amount of time. They came in rehearsed, ready to go. And Tommy knew what to do. And, the, you know, it is like there's it wasn't joking around time in in the studio it was not um it's the opposite of like you know fleetwood mac making rumors you know blocking out a seat the ramones never the only time they made a record that way that i that i know of is is phil specter and that's because they were being basically held hostage yeah you know um it, 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 yeah no they just think about like what band did like a mini run through, you know, with the drummer on drum pads, just, you know, just instruments not plugged in before every show you'd think by, you know, beat on the brat. I could play beat on the brat. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if they're playing beat on the brat that night, like, you know, let's run through before, you know, if they're doing that, every night and like because they know that people paid and they right. 
expect, you know, nobody walked away from a Ramones show going, boy, that wasn't up to par, you know, like they were just, you know, it was like an assault and, you know, and so many people saw the Ramones and started bands and everything. And it's just, uh, yeah, they cared a great deal. You know, to, to have a 14 track album that that essentially comes in just over 28 minutes long, like, <laughs> the, you know, the average song length is like two minutes and eight seconds or something yeah. like that. Like Jethro it, Tull have uh, songs longer than the entire Ramones first album, you know, abs- absolutely. Just, by the way, that's totally fine. I'm not saying Jethro Tull are bad. I'm, you know, it's just a different thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so, it's so different and especially contextualizing it in the late seventies and realizing how different that was just these very there's no fast. guitar solos. You know what I mean? And They're, there's no guitar solos in still you listen to the album and you go, Johnny's amazing on the guitar on this. Like the guitars are amazing on this album and he never has to show it off. No. And um, like less was more, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. leave. It's the oldest show business motto. Leave them wanting more. Absolutely. And, and you do, you get to the end of, you get to the end of their most first album and you simultaneously feel like you haven't heard enough mm-hmm. and you go, Oh, I just, I just heard 14 songs. Like <laughs> that, yeah. it, it, the, the album is short, but you don't feel like you've been robbed of anything. No, mm-hmm. no, you, mm-hmm. um, you, you, there's a lot of bang for your buck there and whatever it was, uh, eight ninety eight that it cost to buy a vinyl record at that time, you know, a lot of bang for your buck. You know, one of the things that we like to do is we talk about these albums. Um, you know, we're, we're of course, big fans of list making as, as obvious by our podcast, but we like to go through albums like this that we love and do kind of, Hey, what's, what are the top five songs from the record? So let's, let's start with you, Jake. What are your five favorite songs from the Ramones debut album? Yeah. Just listen to the whole thing. Like you don't have 28 minutes. Like, are we really at that point? Like, <laughs> don't have 28 minutes to make it from Blitzkrieg Bob to uh, today, your love tomorrow, the world, like, like, you know, boy, Looking at the album, I kind of think the first five songs, as much as it pains me to like not give 53rd and third. So let's take out Let's Dance because that's a cover by Chris Montez. Um, I don't want to crown with you. Yeah. When you look at those first five tracks, Blitzkrieg Bop, Beat on the Brat, Judy is a Punk. I want to be your boyfriend and chainsaw those five in a row. How do you break up those five? 
It's a very right. strong opening. I really yeah. can't break up those five. I have an affinity for now. I want to sniff some glue um, <laughs> just because who the fuck puts that on their debut album? It's so fun. It's just crazy, you know? Um, and Loudmouth's great. And I don't want to, they're all, all these songs are great. 53rd and third, one of the slower songs on the album and autobiographical and, yeah, but I got to say, in order, the, the first five songs on the album, like, if I'm picking a top five, like, that's the top five. How could you how could you do it any other way? You mentioned uh, 53rd and 3rd. Yeah. And it's actually one of the songs, I think it's my second favorite song on the album after yes. Blitzkrieg Bob. And and I think for me, because it is, it's it feels like the 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 breakup of the album because so many of the songs both in tempo and style can sound so similar to each other i love kind of the sonic breakup you get a 53rd and a third where it's it's so different from from the other songs on the album and i love you're saying that like i agree with that because like okay yeah those first four songs you know you you could say all right but then maybe that's why the two, two and a half second chainsaw is there because now we're into chainsaw. Yeah. We're completely into a new territory and tempo with now I want to sniff some glue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then loudmouth, you know, Havana affair, listen to my heart. That's its own little three grouping mm-hmm. 53rd and third and let's dance. And I don't want to rock around with you. 53rd and 3rd and Let's Dance are kind of like, it's almost like a single, like 53rd and 3rd and Let's, it's like B, maybe they should be. A side, B side, yeah. A side, B side. And then I Don't Want to Rock Around With You and Today Your Love, Tomorrow the World is really one song. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know, people are like, are like, oh, they all, all their Ramon songs sound the same. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the point. And also, no, actually, they don't. <laughs> like, no, yes, they do, but no, they don't. And yeah, and, and 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 I think we can live in that tension that that there's an extent to which you know a Ramon song when you hear it. You know, this is a Ramon song. Yeah, and, and also, once you're listening to the Ramones, you also realize how how diverse these albums actually are. But I think that's the thing that I like so much about 53rd to 3rd is that it's not just sonically a different song, but lyrically, I mean, you, yeah, it's, it's not lyrically is it is. Yeah. It's, it's the most different from the rest of the album by, by a mile. It's an admission to two crimes, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and well, actually three crimes, you know, it's, um, drug use, uh, prostitution, male hustling, you know, uh, at the time. And then, you know, uh, assault yeah. <laughs> with a deadly weapon. Um, all in one song that is, you know, Didi, you know, says it's a story, but was it? Standing on the street 
53rd and 3rd is, uh, there's some, it's much deeper than you expect a Ramones song to go, especially on that record in particular. Every now and then they show up, like, even on, like, Too Tough to Die, like, was Mm -hmm. it Planet Earth 1988 or something like that? Like, every now and then you just kind of get these, these kind of different songs, but there's, there's some, there's some kind of great Ramones kind of writing in there. And Didi wrote it on an album where he also wrote, I want to be your boyfriend, which yeah, we which assume is, is Joey, but it's actually Didi wrote that song. No, Didi and Didi like wrote a lot of the songs. And when he stopped touring, you know, and you know, he stayed on as a songwriter, you know, and, and he continued to write great songs for them. Didi was a great songwriter. I want to be your boyfriend. Like anybody can, any girl group recorded that in 1963. Mm-hmm. That would have been a huge hit. Yeah, that's, oh, yeah. where, that's where you're coming. You know what I mean? And I, uh, you know, it's a, it's a perfect pop song. Yeah. yeah it's got the nice bells in there that you don't expect on a Ramones record, but yeah, you know, there, there, there's some like, Phil Spector flourishes the wall of sound. You know what I mean? And yeah. like their wall of sound was just the fucking Marshall amps or whatever they, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, and Johnny playing a Mosrite guitar. Like it's just, well, Jake, um, we want to be mindful of your time and we can't thank you enough for, for being a guest with us. We like to close every interview with, with a question. Um, we like to ask what your top five albums are. And again, this is one of those questions when you're asking someone to, to list top five or something like that, it, it sometimes it can even be fun. So we yeah. leave it up to you. So, so, are, are there five albums you'd consider the best or maybe your top five favorites? Or another thing would be, are there just five underappreciated albums that you want to encourage our listeners to go check out? Yeah. I think the way to do this, because my brain does not work that way. Like the, like the top five best albums. I went and got some singles recently. Okay. I just got a pile of singles. Let me just go grab them. This is a stack of probably, I don't know. This is a stack of, what do you say? So maybe like 20 singles. Sure. Right? That's, a 20. That's like 20. So let me just go through here and I'm going to pick what the, uh, uh, what the best ones of this pack are. Um, some of these are kind of funny, but I'm going to go musically and this is in no order. All right. So this is, this is a completely random all over the place stack of just, I was like, I'm going to buy singles uh, at this store in Los Angeles record safari. My wife was like, can you get out of the house for a little bit? I need to do some stuff. And I was like, okay. So these are just (laughs) five singles that I picked at random. Let me put them in an order. Um, All right. So we'll, we'll put number one, chic lift free oh, cool cool um because it's just i mean this is a great disco song and the the you know you could put this on dance floor forever anybody's gonna dance to it and um i love the story of them not the this song was born out of them not getting in the studio 54 one night and they you know were just singing ah, fuck off and they got back to the 
wherever they were rehearsing and started doing this bass line and, and changed it to Le Freak. So then there's that. This is a picture disc of the Jay Giles band Love Stinks. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's just a good, it's a, you know, it's kind of an underrated band. What's the B-side? Uh, the B-side, so this is from the UK. So the B-side is um, All the Walls Come Tumbling Down. So it's from the, the like a later record. So this hmm. is clearly some like, hey, get this and here's something from the new record. Um, this is a weird one. This is Jimmy Cliff and Elvis Costello and the Attractions doing, uh, it's a promo 45. There's a movie called Club Paradise, which studio executive said, hey, you know what we need? We need to pair Jimmy Cliff and Robin <laughs> Williams and put them in a comedy together. I don't know. But it's a movie that came out. This is a great song called Seven Day Weekend. Mm. Uh, that is Jimmy Cliff and Elvis Costello and the Attractions. It has a runtime of two minutes and 21 seconds. Just kicks ass. And then uh, The Future's So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades by Timbuk, uh, two, Timbuk, Timbuk 3. I'm sorry. Um, just dumb. And then this uh, single, uh, this is a cover of God Save the Queen by a guy named Michael Fagan. Um, and he's backed up by the Bollock Brothers. This gentleman broke into Buckingham Palace twice in 1982. The second time actually making it to the Queen's bedroom. Hmm. Um, he was uh, immediately sent to a psychiatric ward for about four months. And then as soon as he was out of the psychiatric ward, somebody very smart got him into a studio to record God Save the Queen, where he changed some of the lyrics because they were offensive to the Queen. God save the queen, the empire machine. They made me a shadow on streets broad and narrow. God save the queen, a lovely human being. What future can I dream? Don't tell me what I want, don't tell me what I need. Five of a batch of 20 singles that I picked out, like those are the best five. Nice. I, I'd heard that Elvis Costello because I, I have the the Out of Our Idiot LP. Oh, you don't the, own the Club Paradise soundtrack? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Well, Jake, we, we thank you for doing this. One more time for our listeners, plug all that you got going on. Yeah, so just like if you want a podcast from me every week, um, you gotta fucking pay for it. Like there's some, I, I, there's some free episodes up right now, like wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, but I might take them away at any point. Um, this is luxury podcasting. I'm selling a luxury product, luxury brand. Um, if you can afford HBO, I will say there's hundreds of uh, new episodes and access to my nineties archives with all due respect to Taylor Swift. I was smart enough to own my own masters so if you want to see that score TV stuff I did when in the nineties, you can see it. I will give you access to it. www.jake.army. Um, and there is uh there's free stuff too, but, um, and you enjoy it at the tier of your choice, you know, 
it's there's five, 10, 20. And uh, if you join at 20, you're being very, very generous. If you join at five, you're definitely going to get uh, all the shows, both you can watch them as a TV show and you can listen to them wherever you listen to podcasts with the little private feed we've got set up. It is a Patreon. I just bought a domain. So what about social media, Twitter. Yeah, I have those. It's just my name. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, and, uh, and then Instagram. I'd like more Instagram followers. That'd be good. Uh, well, for our listeners, if anyone wants to see some of the stuff that we're seeing, Jake posts a lot of his finds on Instagram. Uh, stuff. Yeah, that's where I post my stuff. You'll like this. Your listeners can't see it, but you can see it. <laughs> Who the hell would own Oh wow! <laughs> the first Ramones album <laughs> on 8-track? Wow. This has misspellings. <laughs> is that like beat is on the brat? Yeah, I think it is uh, beat. Yeah, is on the brat. And there's another one. But yeah, the, the this is just like, who is, who the hell had this in their car? <laughs> like, you know, um, this is a prized possession. Yeah, it's a great relic. Yeah, it's a. Um, uh, it's a horrible format, eight track. It's just awful. Um, the, you know, a lot of nostalgia for uh, cassettes and stuff. And like cassettes, they don't sound as bad as people think that, especially if you're a good cassette player. But the eight tracks are just terrible. They break, the songs are out of the wrong order and stuff. But um, yeah, that that's what's waiting for you on my Instagram and something like that. I love it. I love it. Jake, thank you so much for doing this with us and talking to Ramones for, for a little while. It, it, it has been such a treat and uh, we're looking forward to heading over to Jake.Army and seeing all there is to see. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, it's uh, always fun to talk to Ramones you guys, uh, and you guys know what you're talking about. So uh, I like the cut of your jib, gentlemen. <laughs> Have a good night. Good night, thanks, Jake. I can't help but think after talking to Jake how different my life would be if my first exposure to the Ramones was at seven rather than what was for me 15. Hmm. And I will tell you my first exposure to the Ramones was through the song I Want to Be Sedated covered by Jared Leto playing Jordan Catalano television show, my so-called life. Rob, I am speechless. Okay. Um, yeah, you would have had probably a different trajectory uh, potentially. Um, wow. A cover. Well, this is, well, this is, well, now this is interesting because all of us have, were approached the Ramones through movies Mm-hmm. But none of us through Rock and Roll High School, the movie that they're actually in, 
or Pet Cemetery that they did a song for the soundtrack for. But I heard the Ramones in, uh, and I don't know the name of this movie off the top of my head because nobody should, because nobody will remember this movie. But all I remember is that Tom Arnold was in it. And I think he's on the run or the people are after him and he gets in this van with his family. Carpool. It's called Carpool. Carpool is the name of the movie. This makes sense. Um, But in in that soundtrack was, I believe it's I Want to Be Sedated. And I think maybe one way or another. And like, I mean, there was like Blondie and stuff in there. Um, But I I remember that very clearly. I Want to Be Sedated and be like, wow, that was... See, I don't remember the name of the movie, but I remember I, I want to be sedated, right? And I saw that really. When did that come out? Do you know? Uh, nineteen. The movie came out in ninety six. Ninety six. So I would have been five or six years old. Yeah. So, yeah. So I mean, of course, at that point, I wasn't crate digging and seeking out records or anything. But it, it was it was a sound that I knew. I was like, that's a sound I like. Mm-hmm. Music that sounds like this. I know that I like that. It wasn't long after I was first exposed to that cover of I Want to Be Sedated that I, I went down the rabbit hole of like, ooh, Ramones, I want to, I want more of this. Mm-hmm. And it was that thing of like, even though that I Want to Be Sedated cover was my first like thought of like, ooh, that's what I was exposed to. It is also that thing where you put on the Ramones first album and you immediately feel like you recognize half the songs. Like you you immediately feel like, oh, that sounds familiar in yeah. some way. Well, because they're one of the most influential American bands ever, mm-hmm. you know, and, and people, you and I who grew up listening with a lot of the like Southern California punk artists uh, for you, Green Day, for me, more so Blink-182, right? It all comes back to the Ramones. That's what's so funny kind of about like the, the punk pop era. People being like, no, that's not punk. That's pop. That's punk pop. It's like, yeah, but the Ramones are singing. The Ramones I wanna, are a pop punk band. Uh, they're singing, I want to be your boyfriend. Yeah. And, you know, like what Locket Love and like, I mean, like they, they're singing Bubblegum song. You know, they, they, they're the original punk band and the original punk pop band. And I mean, like if this is where we're sitting in the bar with the Ramones, then punk can be much more than this like tiny narrow thing that people are trying to, you know, push it through. Um, yeah. So yeah, every, everything thing, everything on like this record in particular sounds smoother because they're all like, if if you had listened to it in 76, maybe you couldn't recognize it, but in retrospect, all instant classics. Yeah. You know? And so, and so maybe the way that we need to, to maybe the way that we need to, frame this album or contextualize this album is to say this is an important album this massively important album for quote-unquote punk music but you don't have to think of this as a punk album that, that we can just call this a pop album and well, I mean, you could just say it's one of the great albums of all time. Absolutely. Without, no, without having to, without having to, to compartmentalize it into a genre. Yeah. It's just one of the great albums. It happens to be probably the most influential punk record, especially from America. I mean, the only other competitors would be nevermind the bollocks and probably London calling or substitute that maybe for the first clash record. But I mean, those are kind of the definitive kind of three, staples of 
you know, early punk albums. Uh, but even those bands, right, they all snuck into a Ramon show and after the first album came out and they're like, okay, well, now we know how to do this. We, we know that we knew that we wanted to do this, but now we know how to do this, mm-hmm. you know? And so the Ramones, um, you know, kind of, they didn't bring punk to England. It was already there, but they showed them how to get onto the stages that they needed to get to, to make the movement, you know, fully realized, I guess. The idea of the Ramones is fashionable in a way that not a lot of acts are. Right. Well, you have the clash who are selling an ideology. Yeah. Right there. They, they want to give you something to believe in and to hope for, uh, to potentially make the world a better place. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a big goal. Um, and there are a lot of contradictions in trying to do that on like a major record label, but Ram- the Ramones, they had a type of branding for a band who wasn't very successful were branding themselves. They had their haircuts. They had their leather jackets. They had their tight jeans. Um, they had their, you know, the sleeves cut off their t-shirts and, you know, their cut up t-shirts and they had Joey had a sunglasses and they had, they had a great band logo. You know what I mean? Like with the Eagle, with the bat, you know, like they, they have, they have, there, there's a lot of Ramones iconography, you know, they, the spelling of the Ramones name was pretty much always the same, like on every record, you know, like it, it is a recognizable name. It is, it is, they, they have images that you can package and sell. Um, even if you aren't hearing the music and you can wear those things without having to have belief attached to it. Whereas if I, if someone wears a class shirt, you have to be like, Oh, you have some sort of leftist ideology that you, there's something you believe in. Um, whereas the Ramones is, you know, it's very easy to put on the shirt and, you know, get away with it. But yeah, but it is interesting. It's people wear dark side of the moon shirts and they've never heard of Pink Floyd. Sure. But, but even in that, like it's that thing where you go, this is a band that arrives so fully formed and so, and so branded and so w- well mm-hmm. packaged and marked. I mean, like when we think about the aesthetic of the Ramones, if we were talking about them today, we'd be talking about a group that would have, you know, huge record label money behind them in, in a media teams that was putting together all of this, but they, they kind of arrived that way, this fully formed idea. And then they also arrive not just as a really well-packaged, well-branded band, but with really great catchy music. Yeah. And so it still blows my, like, why wasn't this the biggest band in the world by the end of the seventies? Like what? It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. So all, all of that to be said, because I feel like we've, we talked about so much of that with, with Jake, but it just, it's still, I think it bears repeating that it just blows my mind. Like they should have been a huge, huge, huge band. And my thing is, I think that they are, I, you know, like to me, it's just like, I, I think they were successful, you know, it's just, you know, um, maybe just not commercially or like not, yeah. not, as, not as much as it, I mean, they, they weren't, they, they, their, their meaning in the world is so much greater than what their album sales would lead you to believe. Yeah. I mean, but it's, 
plenty of great. I mean, this goes back to Edgar Allan Poe, goes back to Shakespeare, goes back to Herman Melville. I mean, there are plenty of great artists who, yeah, they 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 were successful. They did it. They did write Moby Dick. They did write all these great poems, these great plays, and these great novels. Um, it just took this long for people to catch up to it. You know, yeah. sometimes it just takes time for everyone else to catch on to how smart something you know, uh, I don't know they, they seem so of the moment but maybe also ahead of their time and maybe you don't you don't have to be on the radio to be a great brand, a band you don't have to go platinum to to know that you have a great record you know so I don't know that stuff's important but the their their cultural impact I think is is much greater than Talking Heads, um, television, Patti Smith, even if, you know, Tom Verlaine's better guitar player than Johnny Ramone and Patti Smith is a greater poet than Dee Dee Ramone, you know, um, their, their cultural impact, I think, cannot be denied. I think they have, of, of the people of that scene and of the American punk rock era, have the greatest cultural impact. I don't, I don't think that can be questioned. So then let's close with our question. Micaiah, mm-hmm. is the Ramones debut album worthy of being in our list of one of the hundred greatest albums ever made? Without a question, yes. And I'm surprised we didn't do this season one. That's how obvious it is to me. Um, and if we were going upward of 500 albums, I would have, I would nominate certainly rocket to Russia and, but I would also be tempted to nominate uh, road to ruin as well as leave home and into the century. Cause I think their first five albums are great. I think they're, I think they're one of the rare bands to have their first five albums be actually great albums. Um, and, it's, and it's all feel good music. Like, yeah, it, it, I mean, even some of their slower stuff, even their about like, I love their balance. Kind of like what we talked about today. Like even 50, 53rd and third, like it's, it's an intense song, but it, it doesn't feel like it weighs you down at all. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's also upbeat. It's also, I mean, it's, it's, it's happy music. Yeah. It's I mean, even when, even music. when, even when Dee, Dee tries to compete with the hardcore punks, like songs like Warthog on too tough to die great hardcore punk song, you know, I, and I love that they would be like, all right, well, Dee can do his hardcore thing and Joey can have his ballads. And, you know, like they, they're, if they, it feels when you listen to these albums, like pretty democratic, you know, in terms of, you know, how they wanted to present themselves and the different songs that they wanted to write. And there are, there are a bunch of different types of remote songs out there. And I love them all. I, I love this band. Um, and this record, um, chief among them. I mean, this is, this is a, a truly exceptional record. One of the most influential that we've talked about from the album cover to all 14 songs to the band themselves. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not only do I think it's in the top 100, if it were in the top 25 on our, in our end list, I would have no complaints about that. I think that would be a fair place for an album. That's this influential. But I mean, I, I listened to this album, year round i i love this record yeah so listener we're gonna leave you um but before we do 
we want you to do a few things for us. Let us know what you think of the Ramones debut album, Ramones, by reaching out to us on Instagram at You Forgot One, on Twitter at You Forgot One Pod. Of course, our website, youforgotone.com. We also want you to go on to Spotify or Apple Music or Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. And we want you to leave a review, rate and review the podcast so that other people can find it. And we're going to leave you now with the only song we have mentioned quite a bit in this podcast that is not on the Ramones debut album. We leave you now with the classic from Road to Ruin, I Want to Be Sedated. Sedated.